0: States around the country see spikes in people poisoned with disinfectant because, well, someone said it might cure COVID-19. It doesn't. A host of studies suggest that far more people have antibodies to COVID-19 and probably had it than we thought. But the WHO reminds us that those antibodies may not mean that people are, in fact, immune. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul el Social distancing in the form of stay-home orders are the most important tool we have right now to stop this pandemic, no matter what a couple of dudes with AK-47s want to say about it. But imagine you can't go home because you don't have one, or because you're incarcerated. That's what we're going to talk about today. Folks suffering severe mental illness, homeless people, and incarcerated people are among the most vulnerable to COVID-19, and yet we pay them little attention because, well, we've never paid them much attention. And that's the problem. Today, I want to focus on them. But first, I want to give you some context of how far COVID 19 may have spread and how early it started spreading. Results from autopsies performed by the Santa Clara County Medical Examiner Coroner suggest that tissues from two people who died in their homes on February 6th and 17th tested positive for the novel coronavirus. That's almost three weeks before the first reported COVID 19 death in Washington on February 29th. Additionally, a number of serology studies, Studies that look at whether or not people have antibodies to coronavirus and therefore have had it in their bodies are showing that the number of people who have been infected may be far higher than we had thought. For example, one study in Santa Clara County and one in L.A. County both suggest that the number of people who have antibodies for the novel coronavirus are way higher than local testing suggests. The Santa Clara County study suggests that the prevalence is 50 to 85 times higher, while the L.A. County suggests that it's 28 to 55 times higher both putting the prevalence up to nearly 5%. Still, the numbers are higher in New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo said this last week. We did a 3,000-person survey, which is uh, fairly extensive, all throughout the state. Statewide, it was about 14% of the people had the antibodies, which means 14% of the people had had the uh, virus. Uh, that's about 2.7 million people in our state. Uh, New York City was close to 20%. Uh, Which was surprising. Yes, one in five New Yorkers. And a serology study in a suburb of Boston showed nearly one in three had antibodies to coronavirus. To be sure, these findings are not yet peer-reviewed, and there have been issues with the design and testing across them. That said, taken together with the coroner's findings about how early COVID-19 had hit America and the fact that testing has been limited to only those with symptoms largely missing asymptomatic carriers— all of this may change our understanding of COVID-19. First, it may be far more widespread and may be more likely to be asymptomatic than we first expected. Second, the death rate, like the number of people who die for every 1,000 people who are infected, may be lower than we had thought. That's leading some people to argue that all of this social distancing isn't warranted. But that's ridiculous for a couple of reasons. First, another recent study compared overall death rates across 11 countries and found an additional 25,000 unexplained deaths over the expected rates, suggesting that they're likely attributable to COVID-19, even if we may not be counting them that way. That means that just as we may not be counting all of the COVID-19 infections, we may not be counting all of the COVID-19 deaths properly either. And more obviously, you just can't argue with surging death tolls in hospitals across the country. At least 53,000 Americans have died of COVID-19 in the last month alone. All of this points to the fact that we need to know a lot more about how widespread COVID-19 has been. Thankfully, we can expect more serology surveys to come out over the next several weeks. But here's the other thing it tells us. So much of that spread gets at the fundamental vulnerability in our society. Think about our most effective tool to stop COVID-19. Social distancing through stay-at-home orders. What does it mean to stay at home when you don't have a home? In some of our most vulnerable communities, cities, Homelessness has been an epidemic way before anyone even heard the word COVID. And when we as a society are as vulnerable as our most vulnerable, as exposed as our most exposed, well, it shouldn't be surprising that COVID-19 has hit us this hard. I spoke with my friend and medical school classmate, Dr. Ashwin Vasan, about it. All right, Dr. Ashwin Vasan is a professor at Columbia University, as well as the president of Fountain House, a really unique Space in New York City that focuses on creating group opportunities for folks suffering severe mental illness. You know, Usher and I went to med school together, so we've known each other for forever. First of all, um, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know that you're you're both on the front lines right now, and and also running a a complex organization from home. So thanks for taking the time.
1: Yeah, my pleasure always.
0: Tell me a little bit about uh, you know, you're somebody who's thought a lot about supporting the health of folks who have been, you know, uniquely and deeply marginalized in our society. Um, and in particular, now you're, you're focused on uh, the health of folks with severe mental illness. But, you know, in your past role with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hyg- Hygiene, you were focused on on marginalized communities in other ways. Can you tell us a little bit about how this pandemic uh, is playing out for, for those communities?
1: You know, look, it's the pandemic is falling along the lines and exposing the structural cracks in our society that have existed for generations that have been embedded in our public policy embedded in our politics and that manifest themselves in really insidious ways in things that we call health disparities right we we look at racial and other demographic indicators, and we look at rates of disease, epidemiologic rates of disease and then we say, "Well, why is that happening well you 've done a great job of describing why that 's happening from a policy and political context and a historical context, but now this virus is here simply um, you know putting lighter fluid or lighting a match to a uh, kindling you know that that 's just sitting there waiting to burn, and what we 're seeing is that whether it is structural inequities that are embedded in our public policy over generations, or whether it's the active um, ignoring or marginalization of of vulnerable communities like some of the folks that I work with, um, they are and will bear the brunt of this epidemic should we fail to be intentional thoughtful and and very decided in our efforts to reach out to them and to protect them and make no mistake that if we leave certain populations like people living with mental illness like those who are chronically homeless like people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated if we leave folks like that uncovered uncared for unsupported during a, an epidemic it's not only a moral issue. It's not only a social justice issue. It's bad public health.
0: So uh, you know, I got to tour uh, Fountain House. It really is an incredible facility. Um, it's uh, in Hell's Kitchen in New York, and uh, just a, a real, a really welcoming place um, for folks that society hasn't done a great job welcoming. Um, I know you guys had to, you had to shut down uh, as you faced the reality of this pandemic that is now raging in New York. Um how have the 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 members of Fountain House coped what where have they gone and um and, and and what have they done and what have you all done to keep them together keep them supported even through physical distancing
1: We've done two major things to try to keep our community together and one is that we ramped up our home-based services we put more boots on the ground we we deliver most of our services at a At this clubhouse site as i called it a congregative model we deployed all of that out into the field with appropriate protective equipment to make sure that people got the essential services that they need meals medication um you know so many of our members rely on us for cash they don't even do banking um benefits arrangement um and also um connectivity we you know we partnered with with cell phone companies and and um, phone providers to make sure that we could distribute uh smartphones and 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 other phones to keep to make sure people were connected and we established a twenty four seven warm line, which we had, but we really ramped that up but the second piece and maybe the most interesting one, which is still under construction, is we almost immediately set up a virtual clubhouse much in the way that that, you know, you and I are looking at each other on Zoom and talking over the internet, um, we wanted to make sure that our our members who, many of whom aren't digitally connected, um, were given access to online resources to come together to approximate some of the collective and congregative work and activities that approximate some of the congregative work that we do at clubhouses.
0: Yeah, I, um, I want to just ask, um, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to be homeless in uh, this moment when um, when you're trying to avoid a uh, a very deadly disease. Um, can you speak to uh, what is being done and what needs to be done uh, to protect folks who are homeless and uh, and what you know our listeners can do um, if they want to get involved and be helpful?
1: yeah absolutely. I mean the short answer is not enough. um you know not enough is being done to protect our homeless brothers and sisters on the street um, let alone the folks who are um cyclically homeless homeless due to um economic shocks and stress and job instability. You know we just had what twenty two million people file for unemployment. We are going to see a spike in homelessness, let alone the folks who are chronically homeless today. So we've got to take an eye towards this. And, you know, in the short term, places like New York City and other cities are certainly trying to open up affordable housing. City Council just passed today a rule that would, would give access to every chronically homeless person, uh, uh, access to a private uh, room, home, um, whether it's a hotel or some other vacant building. And so that's great for an epidemic response that's obviously the bare minimum because we're already seeing massive outbreaks in shelters across across NYC and otherwise and so you know i think that that's that's sort of the 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 floor <laughs> but we you know we very much need to use this as a kickoff for a better and more robust conversation around affordable housing and around why we have why we persist with on the order of 575,000 homeless people, chronically homeless people in the United States, which as, as I said, is, is going to grow with, with the economic shock that our that our society is about to face, is facing. And so we need to really structure a conversation around affordable housing that lifts up the needs of people who are already suffering and who are newly suffering.
0: Well, Dr. Uh, Ashwin Vasan, we really, really appreciate your work, uh, both on the front lines and in providing healthcare for folks, and and also more structurally in the work that you do at uh, at Fountain House. Um, so, thank you for for taking time out of our busy schedule, and uh, and really appreciate your voice. Thanks, my man. Another community that is being devastated by COVID nineteen are America's incarcerated people. Indeed, jails and prisons have emerged as epicenters in many major cities.
1: The original epic center for this pandemic within our prisons is Chicago's Cook County Jail. The number of positive cases has ballooned from two detainees and
0: one staff member in late March to more than 250 detainees and 150
1: staff members today.
0: We'll talk to Professor John Pfaff more about this after the break. John Pfaff is a professor of law at Fordham University. His book, Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration, looks at how American political attitudes and the judges and prosecutors we've elected have driven mass incarceration. He joined me today to talk about the risk of COVID-19 among incarcerated people and what we need to do to protect them. Professor Pfaff, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Um, you know, this is a, a conversation really focused on, on this pandemic and what we un- need to understand. And uh, this episode, we're really focused on, on marginalized communities who we don't pay a lot of attention to. And and one of them is uh, the the community of folks who are incarcerated um, in jails and prisons. And uh, you've been a a longtime leader and and expert on on this issue. Just more broadly, what do we get wrong when we think about incarceration in our country?
2: Yeah, I think there are two things, both of which, two important things, especially in the context of the pandemic that we get wrong. Uh, I think on the on the jail front and, and I, th- I I guess maybe it's helpful to start by distinguishing prisons from jails. I think lots of people use those terms interchangeably right and, and jails tend to be the places where we where people go who are either serving very short sentences for for low level misdemeanor convictions mm-hmm. or mostly at ninety some percent are people awaiting trial who either were denied bail or oftentimes just couldn't pay bail prisons. Or are where we send people who have been convicted of, seri- of felonies, serious offenses, where they tend to spend at least a year after conviction. Um, and we, we don't think about either one properly. And each misconception has big implications for how we respond to, to the current pandemic. Mm. I think for prisons, the challenge we face is that we've kind of bought into this belief that most people are in prison for drugs. Right. There, there was a survey done a couple years ago uh, where about a majority of Americans of all ideological stripes said at least half of all people in prison are there for drugs. And it's only 15% um, are in prison for drugs and 55, 56% are in prison for violence. Um, and almost everyone serving a long sentence is, is being convicted of violence, oftentimes serious violence. You know, fully 25% of our prison population is just homicide and rape, right? And, and so from the pandemic perspective, almost every furlough program that every state has contemplated limits it to people convicted of nonviolent offenses, right? And also, or in some cases, anyone who's ever had a current or past violent offense is not eligible, right? And that kind of policy immediately shrinks the eligible pool down so much that you're really not going to get any real chance at social distancing in prisons.
0: You used the word furlough. And, um, yes, uh, And I think that mean, might mean different things for different folks. Can you explain to us what you mean by furlough?
2: Sure, o- on the prison front, by and large, no one's proposing just letting people out. Most of the times so the proposal is that you will get to get transferred to say a halfway house or, or home arrest until the pandemic has, until the sort of whatever we, we declare the all clear. I, I, it's unclear what that I means. I feel like people believe there's gonna be a moment we're gonna flick a switch and it's over. and it's, that, That's not gonna happen. It's probably
0: not gonna um, happen, yeah.
2: But, but whenever we hit that moment where we decide it's over enough, no, most of those people, mostly men, uh, will be expected to go back to prison, right? So, so it's, not, it's not like a, a getting out of prison move. It's more sort of we'll let you stay somewhere else for now move.
0: With the goal um, of, of achieving social distancing right. uh, and eliminating or vastly reducing the spread in jails and prisons. Right.
2: Because I mean, it's, it's important to understand just how – unsanitary and impossible sort of the necessary hygiene is in prisons. I know one of of the very painful ironies in in New York State, where, where I am, is, you know, the governor boasted about how people in prison were going to be making hand sanitizer. It turns out they actually were just packaging hand sanitizer made elsewhere. But his claim was they're going to be making hand sanitizer, which they themselves could never use because hand sanitizer has alcohol. And I guess they think they're going to drink it. Like, it, w- it would kill you before you could get drunk, right? You can't right? You drink <laughs> hand sanitizer. Um, but that's that's the nature of our prisons, that there, there's oftentimes no soap, there's there's no running water, there, there's no hand sanitizer. Uh, you know, in, in Rikers, which is a jail that's slightly different, right, they try to get social distancing by having the men sleep head to foot, right? So hopefully there's about three feet, four feet between them, between one being at the foot and the other being at the head. Like, you just can't get any sort of distancing, with current capacity
0: so you know and we're telling everybody you know you got to wash your hands with warm soapy vote water for 20 seconds and you've got to stay six feet away from anybody uh and you've got to you've got to stay home that's impossible to do right in jails and prisons
2: yeah and and the only way it is possible is by subjecting the people to basically solitary confinement conditions you know, mm. locked in their cell 23 hours a day almost no social contact right and sure that that can stop the spread of a disease um, but you know the, the psychological harms and trauma that does are, are incredibly well documented it, it is literally not euphemistically it, it is torture right so so it's either massive exposure or torture those are kind of the options prisons leave us with um, on the other side of things are jails and and the thing I think people the the thing I think we often miss Conceive about jails is that you know when we talk about populations, you oftentimes hear the stats. I you know there's about 1.5 million people in prison. There's about 750,000 people in jail, and that's technically true. So, so, so it sounds like prison is the bigger thing, right? It's twice as many people in prison, and it's true that on any given night, our jails hold about 750,000 people nationwide. But time spent in jail is very, very short.
0: Mm. Uh, no there's a lot more deal. throughput. In yeah, jails it's a constant in
2: churn. You know, in New York City, half of all people sent to jail are out in under two weeks. Uh, the average length of stay in, in LA is like six days, in Chicago is under a month, right? And so all told, there's about 10 million admissions and releases from our jails every year. And we think that makes up about 5 million unique individuals who cycle through our jails every year. It's about 1% oh, wow. of the adult percent. population goes to jail every
0: year. So every year. in terms of, in terms of, the number of people who touch a jail, uh, what you're saying is that it's about three, three and a half times as many as the number of people who touch a prison in an average year. So five million versus one point five million.
2: Right. Yeah. And in terms of like in admissions, we admit about six hundred thousand people to jails, prisons. We admit about five million to prisons. So it's about ten times as many admissions every year
0: to wow. jails versus prisons as an epidemiologist that from a public health perspective, that's, that's uh, bad news bears.
2: Right. It, especially when you think about the fact that like if the median time in jail is under two weeks, right? You can show up sick, but asymptomatic leave sick, but asymptomatic. So they have no idea that you've been sick and you're spreading to every person there, all the correctional staff. Right. And then they take it back to their home communities. You take it back to your community. And so the more so than prisons, I think jails are this huge vector for transmission. Um, and, and and here, I think the challenge we have is that our, our jail reduction policies tend to emphasize releasing those, again, mostly men, who themselves have risk factors, elderly, people with diabetes, people with asthma, right? But in many ways, you know, the young, healthy people are just as big a problem in the jails because they're coming and leaving very quickly, not showing any symptoms, but then they're getting the older and sicker people back home.
0: mm So what's being done now in jails and prisons and what ought to be done in jails and prisons?
2: Right. So I I think certainly much more on the jail front than the prison front. I think we are seeing an effort to cut back on admissions and really try to scale back in size. You know, New York City has done a tremendous amount wrong in in recent years, recent months. But, you know, it, it does look like daily admissions to Rikers are down to like 10 or 12 people a day. My guess is they could get it to half or a quarter of that. There might only be one or two who would even necessarily contemplate needing to bring in. But they have cut it by about a factor of 10. It used to be over 100, now it's down to 10. Like that's, That is something. And, and, and Rikers is now down to the lowest number of people since World War II. It's under 4,000.
0: And how's that happened?
2: It, it's happened by just not arresting as many people uh, and by prosecutors not demanding bail. Uh, by judges not imposing bail, right? And all these things can be done without any law, right? The police can simply stop arresting. Um, and, and, and I'd point out, you know, lots of times when people argue for a more humane approach, there's this attitude of, well, you know, if you do the, if, don't do do the crime and the death sentence from crohn if you can't you know, do the time or whatever, right? Which is horribly inhumane. And especially for jails, it ignores the presumption of innocence. But, you know, the NYPD, 20% of their offices are are Testing positive right now, right? Like, like enforcement itself is incredibly dangerous to law enforcement as well because they are upfront, nonstop interacting with populations that have greater levels of of infection to, to start with, right? And so I, I think it has been a push to you know issue tickets rather than make arrests to make fewer stops to to demand bail less often, and, and you can do that. Um, but you no, know, there are also judges and prosecutors and police who don't want to do that, and they remain capable of of issuing warrants and bringing people in when they they want to.
1: Mm.
0: And so what about prisons? So prisons, you talked about the furlough uh, approach. Um, What is being done and, and what ought to be done?
2: I think in prisons, you have seen some efforts to really shut the spread down through sort of much more of a confined approach, right? Because the turnover is much less. They basically put entire wings in lockdown, right? Which again, that works, Right. And if our thought was that the virus was only going to be spreading for two or three weeks, maybe that would be an efficient way to approach it. But, you know, as we talk about, you know, maintaining some sort of shutdown into May to June, you know, there's already schools talking about not opening up in the fall and doing Zoom U into the fall and into December. Like it's like lengthy shutdowns at that length become much less of a humanely tenable policy. Um, I think you are seeing some efforts to, to furlough people out, but but on the prison front, the political will just is not there. I mean, I, I think I think governors and legislators are making a very conscious moral choice and one that sadly might be the right political choice, however bad a moral choice it is, that it is far politically safer to kill 10 men in prison to preventable coronavirus exposure than to run the risk of one person getting out and committing a crime. Um, in fact, we're seeing that we, we, you know, the U.S. attorneys keep talking about how, you know, someone gets released and they commit a murder, having been released because of, the, of a virus policy. And they're literally talking about the exact single case from Florida has not even shown up in, in federal briefs before courts about denying releases. Right. And so they've taken this one case in one state that wasn't even a federal release. It was a state release. Um, and they're, they're hyping it all the time. Uh, and I, And I think politicians are are deciding they'd rather risk deaths in prison than risk someone being released and causing death.
0: A lot of what you're speaking to speaks to this assumption that um that if we were to decarcerate, whether uh, by the choices that are made to not fill jails or the choices that are made to empty prisons, that um that we might see a spike in in crimes because, of course, uh, these folks coming home uh, are going to be uh, out and about in society um, and um, and presumably per, you know, conventional wisdom, uh, committing more crimes. Uh, why are they wrong?
2: So much of the grassroots push for cutting back on prison comes from the communities with the highest levels of crime and punishment, right? And, and so it, it is the people who would most suffer from a bad decision saying that they don't want Prisons anymore, right? Because it's true. When you release someone from prison, some number of them will commit a crime that could have been prevented, right? That is unavoidably true. But two important facts to always keep in mind one is that increasingly data suggests that the actual act of going to prison makes that risk of reoffending greater. And the more months you spend in prison, the more likely you are to reoffend. And so Yeah, you know, while you're in prison, you're not committing crimes on on the outside, at least. Um, But we're actually making things worse in the long run.
0: And to bring it back to this pandemic, we're in a circumstance now where, you know, given uh, the the fact that there is a link between uh, time in jail and the likelihood of committing crime and the downstream consequences that being incarcerated away from your family has on your family, the cost of that just goes way up in the setting of the dangerous circumstances in which we're incarcerating people that are leaving them deeply exposed to a very deadly disease, and um, and so we need to to be acting. Um, who are who is leading this fight, and what can our listeners do um, to, uh, to 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 make sure that um, that that we are not leaving folks who are incarcerated? Um, in in dire circumstances, that that uh, potentially could take their lives.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and I I think the thing about sort of criminal justice policy in general is that it's incredibly local. Right, so the groups pushing in New York will not be the same groups as the groups pushing in Michigan. Right, but there there are in every state lots of groups that are that are pushing hard to to push back on on politicians um, who are very you know even even Democratic governors who tend to be fairly resistant to do anything much. You know, Cuomo hasn't done that much. And I don't think Whitmer's done really all that much. Um, I, my, my sense is probably the best governor out there right now is Jay Inslee on this front. The rest are, are not doing all that much. Um, and, and I think the voters have to make it clear to politicians that they're not going to punish them for that one bad case. Um, to, to really push them to, to think bigger and broader and more ambitiously. You know, it, it was kind of really dis- distressing to see in, in Pennsylvania, where you have a Democratic governor and a lieutenant governor who who takes a fairly bold, loud voice on criminal justice reform. They just recently sent a furlough program to the Republican legislature. And I honestly, when I first heard it, thought that the Republicans had sent it to the governor and he was debating it. Not that this was the Democratic governor's opening bid, but what he proposed had so many restrictions, no current crime of violence, no past crime of violence, no crime involving a person that didn't count as a crime of violence, no one who'd ever violated parole, that in the end, maybe 1,000, 1,500 people would qualify to even apply for an early release, right? And, and that's because he has a rational fear of what would happen if he has a case like what happened in Florida.
0: Well, I, I agree with you, and I hope that um – Finding our empathy in, in the midst of this pandemic can help us to find our empathy more generally. Um, uh, Professor John Pfaff, thank you so much for joining us uh, on America Dissected. Really appreciate uh, your insights, uh, your leadership, and uh, your advocacy.
2: Uh, thank you so much. This is, this is great.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. A research group in Oxford may have just found a candidate vaccine that could be available as early as September the group had developed a vaccine for a previous coronavirus that had already been tested in phase one in humans and is safe. A recent study just found that it's also effective in rhesus monkeys. It's now cleared for a phase two and phase three study of 5,000 people next month in the UK, which will look for safety and efficacy at preventing COVID-19. Could this be the vaccine that works? That's all for today's show. I've got a special guest coming on Friday, and I want to hear from you, We'll be having Andrew Yang on to talk about the $1,200 checks and universal basic income more generally. But we want to know what you're spending your check on. Email me a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com, and you might just hear your own voice with Andrew Yang. If you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. I'll see you on Friday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Take Asuzawa and Alex Huviera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul al sayed Thanks for listening.